0: Church, I've got a simple message this morning um, that I know God is going to bless you through because I got blessed by it this week. It's a one-point message because I got stuck on one thing and I just couldn't get past it all week. And so I just hope that you get caught up in the goodness of God with me um, on this one thing. So if you're visiting with us, just to catch you up, we're walking through the life of David in the Old Testament. He's a king of God, and um, we're walking through the Psalms, which are prayers and songs that he wrote during particular points of his life, and we're partnering the two of them together, and we're learning about how we pray and how we worship and how we walk with God through real-life circumstances. So last week, we we um, saw how do we worship and how do we pray when we get... When, when God just sort of takes the mask off and shows us our own sinfulness, and it's horrible. So we saw David get caught in um, deception and adultery and murder. And it was a horrible pit. And we saw God come to him and just, uh, in his grace, through a prophet, Nathan, expose him. He, he took off the layers that David had put around him so that he couldn't see what he was doing. And God didn't just expose him, he clothed him with forgiveness. So he naked him and then clothed him with forgiveness. And that, that experience of God's love is what empowered David to be gut wrenchingly honest in prayer with God, to confess his sin, and to ask God to do things that God wanted to do. And we, we learned again last week that prayer is not the place to pretend to be good, prayer is the place to be honest. And that as we're honest with God, he meets us there. He longs to pour out his grace. So today we're going to see what happens um, after this. Because as God came to David through the prophet, he said, "Um, Your sin's already taken away. I've forgiven it. God had forgiven it before David even asked for it. That's that's what God is like. But he did also say to him, there's consequences. You're going to experience some consequences. You did these things. And God said to David, Actually, I'm going to do this to you, and you did it in secret, but this is going to be in broad daylight. Now, when God says, I'm going to do something to you, um, and it ends up being something evil, here's what you need to hear. What that means is not that God's doing evil. God doesn't do evil, He's incapable of it. What it means is, I'm going to allow you to experience what you've invited into your life. So, David opened the door through his sins. And he's going to, we're going to, we'll see in a minute, but he's going to experience some of the things that he did come back to him. That's what sin does. So when God says, I'm going to do this to you, what he's saying is, I'm going to allow you, I'm going to stand back and allow you to experience what you invited into your life. Okay. So I, I need to do something before I read our psalm for this morning, our text. And that is, I just need to know how much of the David story I need to tell. So I'm not going to embarrass anybody. I just need to see at your hand. If you read the Samuel text for this morning, um, just put a hand up for me so I know. Okay. Thank you. So we're going to read Psalm 3, and then I'm going to start my sermon. Would you turn with me to Psalm 3? This is what David prayed after what we're about to, to hear about. While you're turning there, let me tell you that um, I was amazed to learn this week that um, they, they believe, they being the people who partner up the Psalms with the events in David's life, that he actually wrote between seven and eight Psalms in this one episode of his life. Yeah, so I had my choice, but this is the one that said specifically on the top, a Psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. And this is what David writes. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you, Lord, are a shield around me. My glory, or the trans- some translations say, my glorious one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. He's not being um, hyperbolic or exaggerating. There's armies marshaled against him. We're going to hear that. And then he says, arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. Word of God. So, dark times. We're going to talk about dark times this morning. And I want to start by um, telling you a story, short story. Maybe you've heard this before, but um, Cherokee Indians had a very common rite of passage for young boys when they were becoming men. And uh, usually it would be right around age 13 that uh, the young boy to become man would be taken out into the woods away from the tribe and he would be blindfolded and he would be told, you need to sit here with this blindfold on, in the woods, all through the night. And if you survive the night, you are a man. But you may not, you will have become a man. But you may not take that blindfold off until you see the first light of dawn. You know, from underneath you can tell when it's starting to get bright. And so the young man, each young man would go out into the woods and he would be blindfolded and then he would be sitting there in silence, and he would begin to hear not just the crickets, but the other noises of the woods. And because he hunted and lived in the woods, he knew what was there. And so he knew that there may be not just fox, but wolf, and cougar, and bear, and many other things. And so every little noise, every little branch breaking, every little wind on something would just... (laughs) And all night long, he would deal with this, what's out there? And he knew that animals weren't just the only things out there, that there were actually other tribes that were enemies out there. And so what is it? What is it as he sits through the night and he listens to noise after noise? And finally, the first light of dawn would come for him and he would, he would finally be able to remove that thing that had been covering his eyes and what he would see would be that his father would be seated about. 10, 12 feet away. And he would find out that he wasn't alone all night, but that actually his father was with him to protect him. And that would change everything for him. Dark times, nights, dark experiences. When someone is with us, it makes all the difference in the world. When we know that someone is with us, when we know that God is with us. It makes all the difference in the world. And so sometimes we go through dark seasons, dark valleys, the Bible calls them, that are half a day, a day, two days long. Sometimes we go through dark valleys that are months long. Sometimes they last a year or two. This morning, we're going to walk with David into a very dark valley. And what we're going to see is that it gets darker and darker and darker and darker. It's like layers of darkness being added to each other. And then we're going to look at his experience of God inside that dark valley. And I think we're going to be amazed because here's what we see. So the first thing that happens to David in this, this, um, There's a little bit of space between what we read last week and what you read this week, so I'm just going to fill it in, okay? The first thing we hear is that one of his sons rapes one of his daughters. So he has children by different wives, and so it's Amnon by one wife raping Tamar, Tamar of another. And then Tamar's brother... Absalom is outraged, and so he plots, and he kills Amnon. So David's just had one daughter be raped, now he's had another son get murdered, and then David becomes estranged from Absalom, the son he loves, because Absalom's run away, and then Absalom is finally, after years, several years of being away and estranged from David, he's invited back to the city, but David, David doesn't see him. And Absalom's got bitterness in his heart. And so Absalom starts to sit by the city gate. And everybody who comes in, he starts to woo them and to talk to them about how if he were just the, the king or the judge in the land, oh, he would serve them and he would give good decisions and he would do all kinds of things that would benefit them. And lo and behold, he lies to his father and tells him, I need to go sacrifice in this place called Hebron. And his King David lets him go. And he goes and he says... When I blow a horn, everybody announce that your support for me is king. And so he does it. And so David is now experiencing betrayal by his own son. His son is taking over for him. And people are coming to support him. And actually David is being driven out of Jerusalem. He's being exiled from his throne this place that God had prepared for him and called him to and that he'd waited so long for and he's gone. So he's experiencing exile and not just exile, but his own son wants to kill him. This is horrible, horrible. And the text tells us that David and his people are leaving Jerusalem and it's just this, this scene of abject wailing, grief. David is barefoot. He's, his head is covered. He's humiliated. And as they're leaving Jerusalem, this guy named Shimei starts to scorn him and, and uh, heap abuse at him and pelt stones at him. And uh, David's men says, Who is this dog? Do you want us to cut his head off? And David says, No, actually, you shouldn't do that because I don't know. I don't know if God has told him to do that. So he's humiliated. He's being scorned. Mocked, pelted, barefoot, driven out, dead son, broken hearted, exiled, heartbroken, exhausted. And then his son comes after him to kill him. With an army of multiple thousands of people. Marshaled all around him. And here's the thing. All of this is the God prophesied, God allowed consequences of his sin. So now you just take those 10 layers of things he's experiencing and you think about him again. And you you put yourself in David's shoes. Everything he's experiencing is something that God is allowing. How does that feel? How does that feel? How is he relating to God? How is he thinking about God? When, when I think about David experiencing all these layers of pain, and then I look at this psalm, I am in awe. These, these are the words that David speaks to God. You're a shield around me. You are my glorious one, the one who lifts my head high. You answer me. I lie down and sleep because you, and I wake up in safety because you sustain me. I'm not going to be afraid of the tens of thousands marshaled against me. From the Lord comes deliverance. What is this? What kind of faith is this that is experiencing all these things that are God allowed, God prophesied, and still He is turning to God? He's saying, you're the one who delivers me, you sustain me, you lift up my head, you protect me, you're a shield around me. That's amazing. When I think about the way that we um, encounter our own situation, our own dark situations, I think so often life gets hard, life turns dark, and we start to feel alone. We start to feel abandoned. We start to feel like, God, where are you? God, why are you allowing this? We start to feel confused, cut off, separated. Maybe we still pray or, or, or come to the Lord, but in our in our mind's eye, in our hearts, we wonder. God, David's not wondering. David is absolutely rock solid sure that he's forgiven. In other words, he believes the word that God spoke last week so strongly, you're forgiven. He believes his guilt has been removed. He believes that even though he's going through all these consequences that he brought into his life, he invited this oppression. He believes that even though he's experiencing all of this, that God is the same to him. That God has not changed. That God is still loving, patient, faithful, covenant-keeping, a deliverer, a sustainer, a strengthener. Nothing has changed. In other words, nothing has changed about God. That God will be the same to him today as he was before when David hadn't fell into sin. In other words, he believes that not even his sin or the consequences of his sin can separate him from God. This is incredible. I, I, I think that in our heart of hearts, not in our minds, but so often we live and act like things that we do and say or don't do can separate us from God. Let me give you some examples. Well, I didn't pray for a couple of days. Now I'm going to go to pray. And how do I think God feels about me as I enter into prayer? What do I think my standing is before God? Do I enter in with a little bit of guilt in my heart? Well, I didn't read my Bible. I, um, I had a fight. I had a fight with my friend. I had a fight with my spouse. I had a, I had a fight with somebody. I made some mistakes and I did this or I did that. And how does God feel about me now? What's my standing before God? So often I think what happens to us is that we do something that we perceive as unpleasing to God. And that brings guilt to our soul. And maybe we confess that. But I don't think that we um, come through to this place of actually believing the full forgiveness that brings release from that sin, that brings lightness, that brings sort of a cleansing of our soul But actually, that we view God's God's um, viewing us through our mistakes. I'm just seeing a lot of blank stares. Is what I'm saying uh, making sense? I need some feedback here. This is this is this is. I I just think this goes everywhere through the Christian life. And if you're not, let, let me let me point to how I think I see this this dynamic at work. Um, all the way through the New Testament. In every church that Paul writes to, I feel like he's dealing with this, you're moving off of grace. You're actually viewing yourself through the things that you do and you don't do that rather than viewing yourself through Christ and what Christ has done. In other words, you think about you're standing with God, and if God is pleased with you, if he loves you, he smiles at you, he looks at you with delight, you're looking at yourself, you're viewing yourself through your own actions, inactions, sins, lack of sins, rather than through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's where I see it. In Second Corinthians chapter eleven verse three, Paul says to the Corinthians, "Look, I'm concerned about you. I'm worried that you are, that just like Eve was deceived by this, the cunningness of, of the serpent, so also you are being led away from the simplicity and purity that is in Christ." How was Eve deceived? The serpent came to her and said, "That's not completely true. God's God is." Um, not giving you everything. There's something that you're lacking. He's—he's, he's, In other words, God is withholding something from you. You don't have enough. That's the deception of the serpent. That God isn't enough. That what God's given you in himself and in creation isn't enough. And Paul's saying, I am concerned that you Corinthians have been moved away from the simplicity of Jesus Christ as enough. He's enough for everything. I'm concerned that you've been moved away from that. That somehow in your relating to God, you think you need to bring something extra. That God's viewing you, his, his, um, whether he's pleased with you, has to do with what you do and what you bring. Okay, to the Colossians, he writes, uh, In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in him... You too have been given fullness, completeness in Christ. You've been given completeness. You've been given everything you need. Why is Paul saying that? Because they're moving off the gospel. Christ isn't enough. He's not enough. Paul's saying you've been given completeness in Christ. Galatian church Paul starts off real nice, says, grace and peace to you. By the third chapter, he says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? In other words, what spell has come over you? What has come over your thinking? That that you are trying to add something to the gospel. Did you receive Christ by anything other than faith? No. Can you add anything to the gospel? No. Is Christ enough? Yes. Yes. To the Romans, like he was writing this morning, that Pastor Jalisa read when she started. Why do you think Paul was saying, I'm convinced nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus? Because people are worried they're getting separated. They think that sin can separate them. They think that the experiences they're going through can separate them. When Paul writes that chapter, he quotes Romans forty or Psalm forty-four when he says, We all like sheep have gone astray. You know what Psalm 44 is about? It's about the people of God going, Hey, we're getting slaughtered. Where are you? You promised you protect us. And Paul says, Hey, even if we get slaughtered right now like sheep, that doesn't mean God's left us. It doesn't mean He's not with us. I'm convinced nothing can separate us from God. No dark valley. There is no dark valley, even ones brought on by sin and their consequences that can separate us from God when we're in Christ Jesus. Why? Because there was one like David, but greater than David, who went into the darkest valley. His name was Jesus. David points to him. David, in himself, has got this this, um, prophetic sonship, spirit of sonship. David trusts God as Father like a son. And David is a picture to us of Jesus who comes and trusts the Father in everything And we saw that when we went through Luke. Three years of dark valleys. Even though he's the light and he's bringing life and he is healing and driving out and proclaiming a kingdom from heaven, he is being beaten from every side. It is not easy. But he's not alone. He's never alone. And he goes into the darkest place, the underworld. He goes into the darkest place. And he's not alone. The Holy Spirit, Romans 1 says, goes and resurrects him to life. I, I'm i speechless. That's right, Hazel. I'm speechless. Because I think that so often... We step outside of the gospel. I think that so often, whether it's experiencing God allowed consequences of sin, or whether it's experiencing the brokenness of this world, that whatever dark place we find ourselves in, we allow our circumstances, our experiences, To direct our belief about God and his presence and his love, his care, his concern, his stance toward us more than we allow what the word of God says about God and his love and his presence and his faithfulness to direct our experience of our circumstances. If what I'm saying isn't true, then why do the valleys feel so dark and horrible? If what I'm saying isn't true, why do our emotions, wh- why why do we experience such joy on the mountaintop and so little joy in the valley? Because we haven't come into what Paul calls the secret of contentment. I, Paul says, "I've learned the secret." Of being content no matter what the circumstances. My contentment, my peace, my joy, where I get my life from, it doesn't flow from what's going on in my life. There's a deeper reality, and that reality is a resurrected Savior who's joined himself to me. I've already been through death and come alive with him. I can't be separated from. His uh, his opinion of me, his view toward me doesn't change. His love never changes. You know, let me just, um, I'm going to wrap up on a couple of minutes, but let me sort of press pause on that point and um, tell tell a little story and then, um, and then wrap it up. So I finished reading a book uh, that Stephanie and I are reading and doing some teaching on a couple of months ago, and I talked to you about it before. It's called Mentoring Leaders. And uh, it's by this guy by the name of Carson Pugh. He's done Christian leadership development his whole life. So he's got a, you know 40 years of thinking about this. And he says, hey, you know what? Um, everybody's different, and there's no cookie-cutter mold for making a leader. you got to do personalized leadership development. But that being said, he said there's, there's five main stages that people go through, and it's not just about leaders, but every person will go through these stages. And he says the first stage is just self-awareness. you got, you got to know who you are. you got to know who you are. What you're, what, how God's made you. You've got to know that you're a sinner, that you've fallen, and you've got to know that you are more dearly loved than anything you could imagine in Christ Jesus. You've got to know that. Rock solid. And once you know that, you can move on to stage two, which he calls freeing up. And he says that if you want to lead and if you want to be effective in serving God, that there's some things that you've got to get freed up from. There's some, some ways that you've been hurt. There's some ways that you've been shaped. There's some things that you think that are all going to be like heavyweights in a backpack and weighing you down as you try to move into serving the Lord. So second stage is freeing up. He calls the third stage visioneering. And that's basically what's God's vision or calling for you. Fourth stage is implementing. So you've got a vision. You begin to implement that vision. And so the fifth stage is called sustaining. What sustains you over the long haul. Now here's what he says that I find so interesting. They run a leadership development program that's two years long. He says we will spend 18 months on the first two stages. We don't care about vision and implementing and sustaining. We don't care about getting to all that work until somebody is rock solid, grounded. Grounded in the deepest places in the love of God. The love of God that even when you're undergoing discipline, the love of God that even when it's dark and you can't see and you're confused and you don't know what's going on or why God's not doing this or he is doing that, the love of God. You got a foundation. If that foundation's not there, he says it's a disaster. It's a train wreck to send people into seeking vision and just, and and serving the Lord. So this is what I believe the Lord wants to say to us this morning. Just come to me, come to me, and let me let me um, deepen your foundation in my love. There have been hard things that you've gone through and hard things that you're going through and you don't know where I am or what I'm doing but you're struggling to trust my love. You're struggling to trust who I am to you all, all the time. I never change. Chesed, unfailing covenant love. So we finished, uh, the worship team finished singing a song this morning and Chess, uh, what did you say to me? What did you say about... Do you remember what you said? You're either dead or you're alive. You don't, you don't remember it. Well, that's good. Yeah, well, we'll just make it up. Because it was something like that. You're dead or you're alive. You're dead or alive. That's what he said. You're dead or you're alive. If you're alive, then you're alive. And alive forevermore. That's Freedom. Here's something freeing. Your sin can't separate you from God, nor can your consequences. Nothing can separate you. The gospel sets us a dancing. So God, liberate us in the deep places in our souls. Liberate us. Liberate us. You can't do anything that can make you get separate. You're alive. Yeah. You've got to just revel in it. You've got to revel in it. Revel in it. Revel in it. Revel in it. It's like, it's like it needs to be marinated in. you just got to go deeper and deeper. It's like a bee over, over a flower. Just drilling, 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 drilling deeper. More pollen, more pollen, more pollen, more pollen. More love, more love, more love, more love. More faithfulness. It's all about who God is. It's about God's character. It's about Him never changing or God. So let's stand up and praise the Lord. Let's praise Him with all of our hearts.